Years ago, a young girl was for the first time taking a train trip across the country, and she was already a little apprehensive about being on a train. She'd never traveled for such a long distance by train. And when they were coming through the country, she was looking out the window as best she could, and she knew that up ahead there was a river. She could see it a few miles up. And the little girl began to panic because she couldn't imagine any way that that train could cross that river. And to make matters worse, she couldn't swim very well. And so she began to be worried and began to panic as that river approached, and they got closer and closer and closer to that river. And as they were almost to the bank of that river, she for the first time saw that there was a bridge that crossed that river. And the train went safely across the bridge. Took a sigh of relief, went for another half hour to 45 minutes, and once again she saw another river and she started to get panicked again. And once again as they approached the river, a bridge suddenly appeared and they were able to cross safely. And this happened a third time. And finally after the third time this happened, she sat back in her seat and took a sigh of relief and she said this in faith-filled confidence. Somebody has put bridges for us all the way to where we are going. Doesn't that beautifully describe what God has done for us? Sometimes we come to an obstacle in life that seems insurmountable. It's a a challenge that we can't see any possible way that we're going to be able to go over or around or through. And just in the nick of time, as we do our best to place our faith-filled confidence in Jesus Christ, He comes through and builds a bridge over or around, or it's sometimes even through that challenge and obstacle that we face. I want you to open your eyes to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 40, what God has for us today. And so please open those Bibles, Uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. We'll finish the chapter today that we've been in for the last few weeks. It's a great chapter. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, uh, you can quickly turn to page 1025, and you'll find Luke chapter 8 at that page in our, uh, in our chair Bibles, the blue one there. And I also encourage you to pull out those message notes and a pen or pencil so you can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. Those message notes are inside your bulletin. And so as we have Bibles in hand, we're going to dive into Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. This message I'm calling today, Two Miracles, Twelve Years in the Making. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Here we go. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told Jesus why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage that we're exploring today, these verses we've just read, and the following verses that we'll read a little bit later. Lord, we believe that you have us in this room today for a reason. You knew about it before we were born. You knew about it before the beginning of time. And there is a reason you have each of us here today, and there's a reason you have me teaching this passage today. So whatever it is you want to say, whatever it is you want to do, we invite you, O God, to say it and do it today in our presence. And all those in agreement say amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, are you ready for this one? Go ahead. I'm curious, how did they answer? Blank stare or yes? All right. like to hear those yeses. Let's dive in. Well, in the prior passage that we looked at last week, uh, Jesus, remember, was on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He was on the southeast shore in that area known as the region of the Gadarenes. And remember what happened when they arrived at the region of the Gadarenes? The disciples stepped off the boat. They were so relieved because they had just survived a storm that had almost taken their lives. Jesus was snoozing in the back of the boat, and they shook him and said, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? They had never encountered a storm like this. Jesus stood up and asked them, where is your faith? He calmed the wind and he calmed the waves perfectly still. And their jaws dropped in amazement at what Jesus had the power to do. They make it to that shore and just when they thought they were safe and sound on on solid uh, dry land, all of a sudden that demoniac, that naked dude comes running out of nowhere, acting all nuts. And then they're scared once again, but Jesus rebukes the demons inside that man, casts them into a herd of pigs. And that man is, by the time we get get to the end of that passage, fully clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet, and in his right mind for the first time in years. It's an amazing account there. And remember what happened at the end of that passage. Sadly, the people in the town valued their pigs more than they valued this poor, tormented man who Jesus had just healed The people pleaded with Jesus to go away, so he consented. Jesus did get in the boat and head back to where he had come from, from the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then meanwhile, that man who had just been healed by Jesus went back home, and he spread the word to whoever whoever would listen, probably hundreds of people. He spread the word about Jesus Christ and the good news of his salvation. Well, when we get to verse 40 here, the passage we just read a few moments ago, when we get to verse 40, Jesus is making his way back to his home region of Galilee. Uh, Most likely he's getting back to that town of Capernaum, which was his home base of operations for ministry. And as he gets back to Capernaum, notice there's a large crowd there. They were expecting him. We kind of get the impression that there were some lookouts there on the beach. And when they recognized the boat that Jesus had left on a day or two earlier, they see that boat returning back toward their shore. And so they begin to quickly spread the word, Jesus is back, Jesus is back, Jesus is back. So by the time they drop anchor and Jesus steps on the shores of Galilee once again, the crowd is already gathered on the beach there. Verse 41, very soon after his arrival, one of the local synagogue rulers named Jairus came to Jesus and he fell at his feet and he pleaded with him to come to his house and heal his 12-year-old daughter who was on her deathbed. As a synagogue ruler, Jairus would have been a highly respected and important man in that community. 
You see, a synagogue ruler was the one that oversaw all the dealings and services at the synagogue. He was the one that would organize all the worship services on the Sabbath day. He would be the one to make sure all of the, uh, the certain liturgical items were in place where they needed to be. He would make sure a certain rabbi was chosen to speak, a certain other rabbi was chosen to read from the scriptures. He made sure everything ran smoothly at the synagogue. And because it was such an important position in Jewish society, typically in those days, a synagogue ruler was paid really, really well. And so imagine this guy, he's, he's well-respected, he's well-known, he's appreciated, and he's pretty well-to-do. He comes and falls at Jesus' feet, and he begs him to come to his home and to heal his little 12-year-old girl who is on her deathbed. Now, because this man was an important man in society, certainly he had friends who were doctors. And so we can rightly assume those doctors hadn't done that little girl any good. Because he had a good amount of money, we can assume that he had purchased all the best medications and none of the medications had worked. The doctors had failed his little girl. The medications had failed his little girl. She was still on her deathbed. Nothing had helped. She was still about to die. So he comes in desperation to Jesus. Now, there's something that came to mind this last week as I was thinking about this passage. Remember a few weeks ago we were in Luke chapter 7. And if you were to flip back a couple pages to the first few verses of Luke chapter 7, it would remind you of one of the healings Jesus did. At the beginning of chapter 7, there was a centurion who came to Jesus. And in fact, it was his helpers, some of his friends that came to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal his servant who was on his deathbed. Remember that? And remember why those Jewish servants came and begged of Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. They said, because this centurion has been a friend to our nation and he built our synagogue. So I kind of put two and two together this last week. Well, wait a minute. It's just been a chapter that centurion's servant was on his deathbed and Jesus healed him. And remember how he healed him? He didn't even go to his house. The centurion said, just say the word from where you are and I know my servant will be healed from a distance. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed instantly. I have faith. And Jesus was amazed. He said, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Here we are just one chapter later. In all likelihood, back in that same town of Capernaum. And what are the chances that the centurion that funded the building of that synagogue knew personally the ruler of that synagogue in that same town. Think the chances are pretty good? I think so. Did they know each other? Certainly. Did the synagogue ruler know that healing that had taken place maybe just a few weeks or a month or two earlier of that centurion servant? Certainly he did. So here's what hit me this last week. Wait a minute. This ruler of the synagogue was fully aware, in all likelihood, he was fully aware of how Jesus had healed the centurion's servant on his deathbed without ever having to go inside of his house. So why then did this synagogue ruler come to Jesus and ask him to come into his house to heal his own daughter instead of just speaking the word and healing her from a distance like he had done in the prior chapter? And I think the only reasonable answer is that this synagogue ruler didn't have the same level of faith as the centurion, which led me to this conclusion... Isn't it interesting that Jesus in no way scolds Jairus for asking him to walk all the way to his house to heal his daughter? 
That was certainly not easy with this crowd that was crowding in on Jesus. This was certainly not convenient for Jesus to walk all the way to his home. But Jesus doesn't criticize him for having weaker faith than the centurion. He doesn't ask him, weren't you paying a bit of attention to how I healed the man a few weeks ago? None of that. When a desperate man with a little bit of faith came to Jesus and asked him to come to his home and heal his daughter, Jesus simply went. And to that I say amen. Isn't that awesome? Jesus doesn't hang it over our heads if our faith isn't quite where it needs to be. And as Jesus walked with Jairus, the crowds pressed in on him. In fact, we read in verse 42 that they almost crushed him. Now that's a pretty anxious crowd, don't you think? Verse 43, now a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So as Mark relays his story to us in Mark 5, this same account in Mark 5, Mark tells us something that Luke doesn't include. Mark writes in Mark chapter 5, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So with the synagogue ruler, Jairus's daughter, we can assume he gave her the best medications and they didn't work. We can assume that he took her to the best doctors and the best doctors couldn't heal her. Here we have without a doubt evidence that this woman who had had some sort of internal hemorrhaging and bleeding for 12 long years, we have clear conclusive evidence that she did go to all the best doctors and she had taken all of the best medications and she had done it to an extent that by this point when she comes to Jesus, she is flat out broke. She has no money left. She's poured all of her money into the best that the medical establishment could offer, and she was still bleeding just as bad as she had been 12 years earlier. And on top of that, she had had to suffer through all of those painful treatments that the doctors had put her through in the vain effort of trying to heal her. For 12 long years, this woman had suffered from this internal bleeding. No matter what the doctors or medications tried to do, nothing nothing really worked. And in a nation like Israel, a woman with this condition had a double, you might say even a triple whammy to deal with. It's bad enough having this excruciating pain and this bleeding and inconvenience of the bleeding on a daily basis. But in Jewish society, according to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 22, when a woman was experiencing her monthly flow of blood, she was banned from attending attending any service at the synagogue. She was banned from religious life until the bleeding stopped. And she was banned from social life until the bleeding stopped. So every woman in Jewish society in Jesus' day dealt with this every month as they would have their period. As long as they were bleeding, as long as there was some internal hemorrhaging, they could not go and socialize or be in religious services like they had been. And so this woman bleeding constantly for 12 years, she hadn't been able to attend synagogue service in 12 years. She was a religious outcast. She couldn't go into social settings because she was considered unclean with this constant bleeding. And so she was a social outcast. And we know from the Old Testament law that a woman in her own home, if she was experiencing her monthly flow of blood, when she sat on a chair, that chair became unclean. And when she laid on a bed, that bed was instantly considered unclean. So she was an outcast in the religious community. She was an outcast in the social community, community, and she was even an outcast, likely, in her very own home. This woman was experiencing her own version 
of hell on earth. For 12 long years, she had been an outcast. Warren Wearsby says it this way. He writes it so well. She was defiled, destitute, discouraged, and desperate. But she came to Jesus, and her need was met. Amen? Isn't Jesus awesome? Her need was met. As Jesus made his way through the crowd, this broken, desperate woman thought to herself, if I can just reach out and touch the edge of Jesus' robe, I'll be healed. This woman had an interesting mixture of faith and superstition. She had faith in Jesus, but somehow she believed that the, the hem or the fringe of his garments or the tassels on those garments, somehow there would be some power running through the clothing, somehow power running through the fabric. I don't even need to touch Jesus or talk to Jesus. I can be healed just touching fabric that is hanging off of Jesus. And so certainly there is this mixture of superstition in with her faith, but once again, Jesus is going to have mercy anyways, even if her faith wasn't perfect. I want you to notice on the screen here this next image. So these are the blue tassels that any Jewish man in Jesus' day would have hanging off of his robe or a shawl that was over his robe. And so if you go back and look at the Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 15, 37 through 40, it describes that every Jewish man is to have these four twisted ropes with some blue thread as part of the twisted rope hanging from the fringe of his garments. And it says there in Numbers that the reason a Jewish man is to do this is so it's a visible reminder of God's laws. I don't know exactly how the blue thread and the number four has to deal with this, but that was God's rule for Jewish men. Four tassels on the outer garment that you're wearing with blue thread woven in. That reminds people of God's laws. And so as this woman, the next image up here, reaches out to touch the hem or the edge of his garment, in all likelihood this woman was reaching out and taking hold of one of those tassels hanging down. She somehow must have believed that there was some healing power running through those tassels that would remind every Jewish man, woman, and child of God's Old Testament laws for Israel. And so she reaches out and touches the edge or the fringe or the tassels of his garment, and it says immediately her bleeding stopped. Well, how is that possible? Because it's Jesus. Immediately her bleeding stopped. I like how Mark adds another addendum to that sentence in his account. Mark writes, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What an awesome thing. Jesus immediately felt that power had gone out from him. So he stopped dead in his tracks and he asked the crowd, who touched me? Who touched me? Well, everybody, oh, I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. Peter knew this was a ridiculous question. Jesus, Peter, in essence, says, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? The better question is, who didn't touch you? The crowd's pressing in on you. Hundreds of people have touched you since you put your first foot on the shore of Capernaum coming off that boat a few minutes ago. Uh, What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus wouldn't relent. He wanted to know who had touched him and been healed. So the woman came through the crowd, and she falls at Jesus' feet, explaining how she had been instantly healed after touching the hem of his garment. And what does Jesus say? He says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in, go in peace. Well, we pick up here in verse 49. 
While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were were wailing and mourning for her. And Jesus said, "Uh, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. While Jesus was taking the time to allow power to flow from him, and as he was pressed in upon by that crowd, as Jesus took the time to stop in his tracks and look through the crowd and ask that question, who touched me? And when Peter says, everybody's touching you, Jesus is still asking, who touched me? And when the woman comes out of the crowd and explains what had happened, Jesus is taking the time to listen to her. And then he takes the time to say, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus is taking all of these precious seconds as Jairus is standing right beside Jesus, most likely thinking to himself, Jesus, time's a ticking. I told you 15, 20 minutes ago, my daughter is on her deathbed. She doesn't have much time. Jesus, why are you stopping to talk to this woman? She's healed already. Let it rest at that. Come on, we don't have much time. We've got to hurry. But as far as we know, Jairus zipped it. He kept his thoughts to himself. But as Jesus is still finishing up talking to that woman who had been healed of her 12 years of bleeding, As Jesus is still speaking with her, that messenger comes from Jairus' house with that news, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And we can imagine those of us who are fathers or mothers, how our heart would drop if someone spoke those words to us. And so Jairus' heart must have dropped. But Jesus quickly says, oh, Jairus, Jairus, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Jesus follows Jairus the rest of the way to his home, and they get to Jairus' home, and in those days they would pay professional mourners to be crying and wailing outside the house so everybody would know there was a death in the household. And so they're crying and they're wailing because this little girl is dead. And Jesus says, stop wailing. She's not dead but asleep. And they laugh at him because these people, they know death. They know a dead girl when they see one. She was dead. She was not coming back. And so they laugh at Jesus. Jesus takes the mom and dad, Jairus and Jairus' wife, into the girl's bedroom where her body was. And Jesus only invites three of his disciples to come with him, Peter, James, and John. This is the first of three times in the New Testament that Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a privilege of experiencing something that the other nine apostles did not get to experience. This is the first of those three times Jesus brings them in. And so the five of those are with Jesus standing at the bedside. And he takes her by the hand and he says, Talitha kum, we read in the book of Mark. And that translates as, 
my little daughter, I say to you, arise, get up. And to her parents' amazement and to the disciples' amazement, the little girl opens her eyes and stands up and Jesus says, give her something to eat. And I wish I could have been there when that little girl stepped out of the door of her home and walked through the crowd of those weepers and wailers chomping on a chicken leg. That would have been awesome to see the look on their faces and their jaws drop. They knew that girl was dead. But Jesus knew something they didn't know. A body is only animated when the spirit God creates is inside that body. And Jesus understood that what had happened was she had physically died and that spirit had left her body, but only for a little while. And 15, 20, maybe 45 minutes later, when Jesus in his authoritative power spoke the word, all he simply had to do was tell the spirit, go back into the body for a while longer. So the spirit of that girl went back into her body, reanimating her body, until at which time God would call her home to heaven. And so Jesus said she's not dead but asleep. He introduced to his disciples on that day this notion that for a Christian there really is no death. Our bodies die, but our spirit never dies. And for the Christian, to be absent from the body is simply to be present with the Lord. And he just told that spirit to go back for a little while longer until one day she would die for good physically, but the spirit would live on in the presence of the Lord. And so we find later in the New Testament, we refer to death as sleep. And it stems right back to Jesus' command here. For the spirit of this girl to return to the body, she is not dead, but she is sleeping. There's three life lessons I want to point out to you quickly here. And I encourage you to jot these down in your handout because I think each of these is so important. Number one, each of us is at a different place in our faith journey. And Jesus is patient with each of us. Now, some of you might look at that and say, yeah, that's a no-brainer. But I want you to really wrap your minds around what this lesson is saying. And related to the story we have just read, Jairus was at one place in his faith journey. He believed that Jesus could heal his daughter if she was still alive and Jesus was inside the bedroom where his daughter was. That was one level of faith. The bleeding woman had a different kind of faith. Her faith was this weird faith kind of mixed with some superstition. I don't need to speak to Jesus or have him in my home, but I just need to touch the fringe of his garment or the tassels hanging down. That was a different level of faith. The messenger from Jairus' home thought perhaps Jesus could heal the daughter if Jesus was in the home and the daughter was still alive, but certainly Jesus couldn't heal her once she had already died. And then you have the mourners outside the little girl's home, and they had a different level of faith still. And the truth is that each of Jesus' 12 disciples likely had a different level of faith. But notice that Jesus does not scold them very often about their faith. Notice that he doesn't say, well, why don't you have faith more like this guy over here? Jesus has this regular habit of meeting someone right where they're at and taking that little bit of sliver of faith that they may have and leading them into deeper levels of faith. And the same should go with you and me. As we follow Jesus, we need to be patient with each other. Sometimes we get so impatient with other Christians. You're the same age as me. 
you should know better than this. You've been a Christian as long as I have. You should know better than this. Why isn't your faith where mine is? Why aren't your Bible study habits where mine are? Why isn't your church attendance as good as mine? You're dropping the ball. Sometimes we're so impatient with each other. I tell you, my grandmother, my mom's mom, passed away at 98 and a half, and she was a woman that loved Jesus Christ more than life itself. She loved the Lord. But at the same time, my grandma was a worry wart. My granddad, when he was alive, used to shake his head oftentimes and say, Honey, don't worry about the mule going blind. That was his way of saying, You know what? You're worrying about stuff that's never going to happen. For whatever reason, my grandma, she loved the Lord, but she struggled with her faith at times, trusting God for the little things. She worried about things that in all likelihood, in all probability, would never happen. But Jesus Christ was patient with her, and he's patient with me, and he's patient with you. So he calls us to be patient with each other. Number two, Jesus wasn't ever in a hurry. He allowed himself time to be interrupted, and it was during these interruptions that he did some of his best ministry. As residents of Southern California, every single one of us needs to know this lesson. We're always in such a big hurry. Rushing to the store and then rushing back home and then rushing to work and rushing to church. And, you know, okay, you want to stay for five minutes for linger longer? Nope, I got to go. I got something going at 12.15 on Sunday afternoon. We just pack in our schedules so tight and we're rushing back and forth. And I want you to know if you've wondered at any time in the recent past, why doesn't God give me more ministry opportunities to be a blessing? It in all likelihood is because you haven't given him time to interrupt your precious schedule. Jesus Christ did some of his best ministry when he was interrupted. He was on his way to Jairus' house, and this crazy woman bleeding for 12 years, how dare she interrupt Jesus' precious schedule? He stopped and did what he needed to do to minister to that woman. And then in time, he got to Jairus' house and did something that blew everyone's socks off. If you want to be used of God in greater ways, allow Him to interrupt your schedule with some surprise, unexpected ministry. Number three, our faith opens the door for Jesus to build bridges of healing and salvation. Verses 48 and 50, I want to point out to you, if you still have those Bibles open, look at verses 48 and 50 and what it says. In verse 48, we read, Then He said to her, Daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And then in verse 50, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. The word healed in verse 48 and 50 is the Greek word sozo, which translates most often as saved. The word for salvation and healing are the same Greek word in the New Testament. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Jesus Christ wants us to know when we put our faith in Him, that faith paves the way for both His healing and His salvation. Jesus builds great bridges as we put our faith in Him. Amen? That's what He does. He's the great bridge builder. As we face our obstacles that seem insurmountable, let's trust Him. He is an expert at building bridges over and around and at times even through the greatest obstacles that we face as individuals, 
as couples in marriage, as families, and as a church. He is the great bridge builder who builds these wonderful, glorious, unimaginable bridges to take us in, through, or around any obstacle that we face. And with that, I want to invite Gary to step up and share a little bit about what is it God, what God is doing here at First Christian Church. Good morning, church. Uh, 